Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon. Would you like to try a free sample of our double fudge brownie? Oh, sure. Mmm, that's very good. I- I'll just take one more, just to be sure. Yep, still very good. Some things never change. Like never being able to take just one free sample. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Mmm, is that macadamia nut I taste? Let me take one more. Sir, mm. yeah, I thought so. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Is that Shakespeare? Nope, it's Geico. Uh, yeah, 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 that's Shakespeare from one of his unpublished works. Oh, it be not for awakening. Nay, give it thou the berries. For fifteen minutes could save you fifteen percent or more. No, it's from Geico, cause they help save people money. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Geico got it from Shakespeare. Geico. Fifteen minutes could save you fifteen percent or more. You're listening to The Wobbly Road on Transmission Roundhouse. I'm your host, Tatum Swithenbank. When I became disabled at age 18, I experienced years of limbo before getting a diagnosis, and the road continues to change and challenge. On each episode, I'll be chatting to guests about their off-kilter moments and how they've endured, adapted, and flourished. This episode, I talked to Jess Ratcliffe, I met Jess at an event and I knew straight away I wanted to share her story with you all. We chat about her diagnosis of a rare blood disease and how you can stop negative narratives running your life. It also unexpectedly brought up a really interesting question about whether we need a drastic life experience for a wake-up call and if that is necessary to make changes within our lives. Your life took a huge um, change of direction in the last few years. That's right. Yeah. So I want to go through that journey. But before that happened, like, what did your life look like? Good question. <laughs> and causing me to go back and think about it, which I haven't done for a while. So the year that it took a turn was 2016. So back then, well, it's taken a couple of turns, I should say, but the big one was 2016. The one of choice it was 2017. So if I sort of go to that era or chapter. So I was living in San Francisco, working in product at a startup that felt like it had a meaningful mission. So I was, you know, should have been loving life, should have been loving what I was doing. And then in 2016, I had a diagnosis, which came out of nowhere. And I'm sure we'll get into that more in a second. But during that time, yeah, I was living, I'd been out in San Francisco probably for a year by that point, and definitely wasn't ready to leave absolutely loved living there was trying as much as possible to love all areas of it but still felt like there was something missing like that somehow I wasn't really fulfilling my potential and I think I knew that that was a missing entrepreneurial element because I started a business when I was 19 and always 
felt, and that now scarily is about 10 years ago. Um, so that was a long time before San Francisco. And I always just felt whenever working for other people that there was always something missing. So I thought it was that. Couldn't quite m put my finger on it. Tried all sorts of different things, like really throwing myself into work, throwing myself into hobbies, um, and just always felt like it was missing. And then 2016 came about and out of nowhere, I was diagnosed with a life-threatening and ultra-rare blood disease. So one in 1.3 million people have it. Have absolutely no idea how that came to be me, but it was. And it just, yeah, really happened out of nowhere. It started with feeling just tired and not being able to get rid of a sore throat, which at first they thought was low iron levels. So they gave me like five years worth of iron, which apparently I got rid of in like two months. So they were then like, that's not normal. And after, yeah, pulling on like the thread of all possibilities and many different tests, landed on what is called PNH, which is proximal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. And that's what I've got. And then that was really that starting point to really question, okay, like if I'm not feeling fulfilled and I feel like I am scraping the surface of life and my potential, what would it look like to actually go after the life that I think I want or be the mm. person that I want to be and then started yeah building that person yeah and sometimes it takes those like really life-changing moments to really reevaluate everything because you can be like oh I'm feeling quite healthy and happy and life's good but you feel an empty yeah and you don't like really somewhere. know why mm. you know and it's like we get so used to powering through it or distracting with other things that until something happens and we sort of have to really zoom out and get to I guess see the whole picture of the direction we're heading in only then could I kind of think, actually, I don't really want to just go through the normal progression here of go from product manager to head of product to director of product. Like there's something else and there's some, there's a part of me that I wasn't really listening to, that entrepreneurial part, which to be fair was literally because I didn't really have an idea to work on. So I remember my mum saying to me on a holiday when they came out to visit while I was living in San Francisco, like, do you have any ideas, like anything else that you could work on? Because obviously they knew about the one when I was 19. And I just, I think it's always been something I've been destined to do. And I remember saying to my mum, like, no, like, literally, I don't have any ideas. Like, what what can I do to almost force an idea? And then it was just a few months later that my diagnosis came about. And then that sparked what I now do. So it's like one of these crazy, potentially universe delivering things. Yeah. Like, obviously, the narrative of um, you have to experience trauma to be able to have these things that change your life. And you need to experience that to have like a find your way in life is is a bit tired. And we shouldn't always be focusing yeah. on that. But the sometimes and you've used that as a positive of going, oh, wow, like, I've not been living my life to the full, full potential. And especially with the work that you've gone into, which is kind of helping other people find their yeah. best selves and um, personal development. You've used that awakening for something that's really positive but first of all can I just say you had a you started your own business at 19 yes that's so impressive oh thanks <laughs> I actually had the idea for the business when I was 15 and then tried to build it back then hired a freelancer that ran off with my money on the internet and it was not that much money because it was just what I could get from like washing cars selling sweets all of that kind of stuff um, but I remember being absolutely gutted that this random username that I'd hired on like a freelancer website would actually run off with my money, which of course they would. Why, you know, they could clearly tell, I don't know, possibly from my excited emails that I was quite young. Um, it's quite it was quite an early on lesson then. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It made me quite bitter. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> never trust people. Even still, actually, it was just one of those things where I guess because I never really knew them, even though they ran off, it was like this persona. It wasn't like a personal thing. It was just like, oh, they're just like 
a twat, I guess. But sure. Anyway, um, yes, yeah, so that idea was a video game swapping website. I used to play a lot of video games, still play video games, and used to swap them with friends and neighbours. And then just one day, like while probably mid swap, thought, hang on a minute, like this would be cool if I could swap with everyone in the UK. And then just sort of started mapping it out from there, really. So that that was the idea at 15. And then I sort of sat on it, developed it, notebooked it until then actually starting at 19 which is when I started at university immediately knew that I didn't like it don't know why but just have always been a bit of a rebel I guess of breaking away from normal paths and I remember declaring to my parents that I was gonna drop out and start that business again and then I did so yeah, wow and then the did you move to San Francisco then after you'd decided to drop that business was that exactly your first? Okay. yeah so quite a bit after so uh so the starting of the business at 19 would have been 2009 and I moved to San Francisco in 2015. And what were your surroundings when you found out this diagnosis? Did you just go to the doctors one day? Like how did that actually come about? And were you yeah. living on your own there away from family? Not not at the point of diagnosis I was back home for a visit. Right. But in San Francisco I was away from home, away from family and just living with roommates. So the sort of fi- the finding out of it. I remember having this sore throat that just would not go away and I used to commute into London because I live just a bit south of London, was at the startup that then moved us to San Francisco. And I was like the only product person at the time, employee number nine. So we had this app that we were building and had to get out. And I just remember powering through this sore throat, basically. So for ages, I just thought, oh, it's because I'm not resting. And I'm just, if I just get the app out and then I can have a rest. Um, But it wouldn't go away. And then I just remember this time of sort of, my boss at the time, so who would have been the CEO, was speaking to me. And I remember thinking, I know you're speaking to me, but like I'm not grabbing onto what you're actually saying. And so I sort of had a mini freak out thinking, what is going on here? Um, went back home, went to the GP, which is when they took a blood test and figured out that my iron and oxygen levels were really low. Hence why I probably wasn't like grasping, like it affects your cognitive function. Um, which obviously that in itself was quite scary, but that was just the beginning of what was really like a year to 18 months of discovering or like doing lots of different tests, them not knowing what it was, because again, it's so rare, they don't test for it. So I had like bone marrow biopsies, which was like the most most painful thing I've ever had. Um, Sorry if I can't swear, by the way. Oh no, it's fine, I can beep it. Uh, Um, I I had a biopsy and it was, uh, biopsies are awful. It was painful. Were you awake as well? Yeah, I was awake. And... I was with my mum and I remember just thinking, I'm going to swear so much during this because as they were doing it, it just was coming. And I remember her looking at me like as if, you know, I just don't really, wouldn't really swear in front of my mum, but I just couldn't hold it in because it was like the weirdest feeling and most painful thing. Um, And then that didn't lead to anything. And so it was all of these things where they initially thought it was this and then it wasn't. And then they'd try this and it wouldn't work. And then I actually went out. I moved to San Francisco because all of this delayed the move. And was out there for a couple of months before coming back for a visit. And then it was in that follow-up that they more discovered, or like did more tests. And then I got the results of those when I came back in the January following. So it was like months in between that. And then that's when they unveiled over the phone that it was um, PNH because it was over the Christmas break. So like the guy was just like, I'm just going to give you the name of this. So obviously I Googled it and you read things like that the median survival rate after diagnosis is 10 years. And I was 25. And that's that for me, going back to what you mentioned there around, I don't think it takes like a trauma for people to actually 
have that wake up call. I think I just needed it because I wasn't choosing it. And actually by reading that stat, like that was the thing that made me think, if I actually had 10 years, what would I do? And you sort of, I think there's questions like that out there and we can dream about them and we, you know, we go really bold, but actually it's more of the micro changes as well of like, how am I actually going to admit that I'm not super happy or where I'm not fulfilling my potential? And then with that awareness, what choice am I going to make? And for me, the thing that my diagnosis has sort of given me, I think, is the shift of fear. So before the fear would be on, oh God, what if I quit my job and I never get another job again? As soon as you think you're going to die, that fear goes out the window. So it's more, what if I don't quit my job and I stay like this level of like, 60% happiness for more time, right? Of this 10 years potential window or whatever. And even if that's not true, it's more just, it kind of forces us to see the actual truth of it. Because if we would think of the change we want to make through the lens of that 10 years, why not then go after it as if we've got 10 years, even if we then hope that we've got more? I think I would have had the same wake up call if I would have had the tools to know how to spark that. Because I was definitely seeking something so I don't think it takes that sort of you know everyone to have to have and as you say now I guess through my work and I do this when I started doing workshops I used to really go heavy on the whole like wake up call and I remember people would be sitting there sort of like bloody hell they've not thought about this before or you know to kind of be facing it for the first time and you know facing our mortality for the like not first time but sitting in a casual workshop where you're not expecting someone <laughs> called Jess Ratcliffe to like <laughs> tell you that you're going to die. You know, you kind of, you just think, we never think about it. Mm. And actually, if we did think about it more, it could urge us to do what we actually want to do and and prioritise that rather than wait for when, I guess. Yeah, because you had a complete shift in your perspective of everything. Absolutely. But yeah. I used to do that a lot where I was like, you have to have something really like big happen to you and, and kind of like a life-changing moment. And then I had other people kind of go, oh, but that's not a very good narrative to kind of push because then you have to say to people, oh, you have to experience bad things. And like you say, not everyone has to have that, but some people, that's the only way you make change because you have this kind of universe shoving something in your face. And you're yeah, like, exactly. you've got to shift yeah. something. And giving you some kind of... I guess that is why they're called wake-up calls, isn't it? Because it could say otherwise that if we need a wake-up call, it kind of means that we're asleep to a lot of the things that we want and actually giving ourselves permission, I think, to go for that even without the wake-up call. Yeah. Like, I think so often the changes that we make, if they feel really big, they're almost more explainable if we've had a diagnosis. So as soon as I then wanted to quit my job, as soon as I handed in my notice, I remember, like... It felt like everyone was more okay with it because I think they thought I was going off, you know, to die. Um, or like, you know, have some sort of big, like, go traveling for the rest of my life and whatever. But it's almost because of that experience, I could, yeah, maybe own it more than if I just said, actually, no, this is my choice. I'm done here and here's my notice. It's more that they could grab onto maybe like, oh, it's not us, it's because Jess has had a wake-up call or, I don't know, she's woken up to what she really wants and that's not this and that's okay. It's more how other people might receive our changes and choice of that change. It can feel more explainable if we have had that moment of, oh, my God, to then make those big, big changes. You took the ownership of it, but you're allowing other people to take ownership without having to have a drastic yes, life yeah. moment. It sounds like it was more scary 
for you to think about being in the same place, doing the same job. Um, the scariest thing could be staying in that same position when for yeah. other people, the scariest thing can feel like leaving. But actually, if you really evaluate it properly, yep. staying is the scariest thing. Exactly. If, if you're not completely happy with what you're doing exactly. and if it's not fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. I, always, I always sort of try to anchor to what would I regret? Um, because in the sort of fog of my diagnosis, there was moments where I genuinely, yeah, had these sort of, I don't know, bodily sensations, I guess, where I thought, oh my God, like, I think this is it. Like, I think I'm going to die. And all I remember in that moment was like how heavy it felt that I would have regretted so much of not trying more, not trusting myself more, not going for what I really wanted. Because back then it was still, you know, I hadn't yet quit my job, I was still living in San Francisco. And I loved San Francisco, which was sort of the tussle with, do I stay with the job for a bit longer to live there a bit longer and and because that was my visa but it really for me when when the that specific moment that I can remember sort of hit I just felt this real like I'm not going to experience this again like I'm not going to risk regret at what I felt was that level because I'd been silencing what I really wanted and you know let that sort of and they're crazy narratives right in terms of not crazy crazy but they're too powerful when they're not true and we don't test them because we believe them so much because we hear them in our own heads and then fear what others would think. So I literally thought to myself, what if I quit my job and I never get another job again? Like, never. Like, that's just not really possible. And I could get a job. You know, it's possible to get something or create my own job or do whatever. And that was before knowing what I would actually go on to do. But I just think even that narrative, the strength of it, could stop anybody you just think oh, okay all right I'll, I'll wait a little bit I'll like I'll make it safe I'll like stay for a bit longer where I'm not happy but I'll I'll figure out a plan rather than actually trusting that we'll figure it out I know that when people get diagnosis you go through different things of shock and yeah, then denial absolutely. and then healing like I was wondering yeah. what if you can remember what sorts of emotions you felt yeah definitely and I think they happened over time as well or at least I sort of acknowledged them over time I think so I think my initial one was fear and I feel more pulled towards the fact that it was fear of basically what have I been doing? Um, and not that I was like, you know, slacking or not really like living a good life, but more, there's more than this. And this could have been over before I'd had a chance to even try it out or really like go for it. Um, then it was definitely fear of dying and and more fear of the people that, yeah, you know, the impact of those left behind, I guess. Not that it makes any difference, but I'm an only child, so I always think of that. Um, and then I remember as well, because when I got back to San Francisco, so I was diagnosed in the January and got back to San Francisco about a month later because I was sort of rushed onto treatment um, and had to just navigate a bunch of things, figure out insurance for over there and all of that malarkey. But I remember then going to see someone, and I remember she actually, it was really random, but she was British in San Francisco, and it just kind of felt quite homely, don't know why, little anecdote. But she was the first person that said, I think you're in shock. And I'd never actually thought of shock as something that I would have been experiencing. But then, of course, because this crazy news comes out of nowhere and I'm having to like think about things that I'd never thought about and make decisions now from that place of not going back to that risk of regret, you know, which I just wasn't even thinking about before. I'm sort of blind to a little bit. And by hearing her say it, that was the first time that I could sort of recognise that emotion and experience. So I think that's kind of how it then unfolded 
you know, there's the initial fear and then not really knowing what I was experiencing until she labelled it as shock. And then I could be like, okay, this makes sense, actually, because I'd get really angry and be like, why me from like an angry place? And then it would be like, why me from like a spiritual place? And then, you know, all of this kind of confusion and what do I want this to mean? What do I want to choose for this to mean? Because it could easily mean nothing, right, and change nothing. Um, so, yeah, I think lots of sort of confusion slash fogginess of trying to choose what it meant and then having hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To play around with like making smaller changes to try and boost fulfillment, happiness before then making the bigger change of leaving my job, coming back to the UK, somehow figuring out what I do now is what I wanted to do and then actually starting that mm. yeah with PNH actually can we break mm-hmm. down a little bit yeah yeah I know it's like kind of hard because there's all doctor. these science yeah. long words but can you in the best way possible explain yeah. what it is exactly okay so the way I always describe it and then I feel like this is a point where my doctor might listen and be like she's had this wrong all this time she's got it wrong <laughs> um but what the way I describe it is that ultimately what PNH means is that the blood cells I create, both the red and the white blood cells, don't all have the coating on that they need. And it's the white blood cells that are a bit more risky. So when they don't have their coating, they become sticky. And so blood clots, which is how they're formed, so they all stick together or potentially stick together, form blood clots, get that in the wrong place and could be game over. Um and so you then have a PNH clone, which is the percentage of your blood that is PNH blood rather than healthy blood. And so if my PNH clone, for example, was like 5%, the blood cells without the white ones, particularly without the coating, the chances of them hitting each other and forming a blood clot are pretty low. But my clone was 99%. So my most of my blood and I was like flying back and forth long distance and so I literally was a ticking time bomb that that's why they sort of then sweeped me onto treatment so the treatment that I'm now on which I can never pronounce is like the rarest slash like most expensive drug in the world and I think it ultimately when it's in my system so I call it my superwoman juice because I can't pronounce it and it sounds cooler than whatever it is called which is like um, or whatever it is um and so but what that does is when it's in my system it like freezes the activity. So it's meant to act like I, like my blood cells have coatings and things like that. So, yeah. With your treatment, is this something that you are going to have to continue like for the rest of your life to manage? Yes. So at the moment it's an infusion. Um, hence why I call it my superwoman juice. But I mean, given the way things technology wise are going, it could in like 50 years be a tablet or something. You know, it's kind of at the moment, the answer to that is yes, but there's so much going on that you just don't know. It might be something that they 
eventually give me one big batch and I'm like set for life or something. Yeah, it's hard with rare diseases because I don't know if you find this, but did you spend a lot of time on your own researching things and trying to figure things out? Yeah, although I didn't do too much, to be honest, because after reading the 10 years, I was pretty scared to Google things. And there's just so much varying experience. So I'm the only person my age who I've met with it. Everybody else is more like late 70s, which I'm not, um, <laughs> early 80s. And and so their experience of it and how tired it makes them can feel very different just because they typically have something else going on as well. And again, because there's literally one in 1.3 million of us, I've only met two others. So they're not like a good sample size, but that's typically the way. So yeah, I don't know. I haven't done too much of the own research and they do groups and stuff to go to, but I'm it's overwhelming, a little bit. Though, yeah, isn't exactly. it? Sometimes, and actually, like you've got to get the balance of being realistic and wanting to understand your disease, yeah. but also not to the point where you're reading stuff and then you, like, fall into a trap of kind of getting attached to those things. Exactly, exactly. Or being too, I think, focused on like watching for things that then could be signs that sometimes it's more, not necessarily blissful ignorance, but more like maintaining the positivity and like the mindset I just kind of carry on and trust that if something happens I'll know what to do or whatever yeah how often do you have to go and have treatment so now luckily it's every two months it was every week at first and then two weeks and now it's two months yeah big bag of (laughs) juice yeah but even with that somebody could think oh you know poor Jess she's got to go every two months and and have her treatment but you're there being like oh I get to every two months go and have my treatment to make my life easier and I think a lot of people who are managing diseases or disabilities like even when when I can't walk because of my own muscular dystrophy like if I have a walking stick people kind of victimize me and think oh poor her or take the mick out of me but I'm like well you know I'm getting out today because I have this stick so this is allowing me to do what I want that day yeah and I feel like you've got that same energy of like I've got this this treatment that I'm having but it's my superwoman juice rather than oh like oh I've got to go have this even though of course it's hard and that's a it's a difficult thing to deal with because you're gonna have to always manage that but you're seeing it in a different kind of light which allows other people then to see it in a different light it's really positive yeah I hope so and I remember like when I first started and when it was weekly it was just more you couldn't not think about it um And I just remember getting to a point where I thought to myself, like, I have to switch this to, like, a positive experience. Otherwise, like, I'll forever dread this and this will be forever. So I used to do things like, because I was in San Francisco at the time when I started treatment. So it used to be every Tuesday afternoon. And because I was sort of sneak, you know, I was obviously ready to, like, move on from that place and do, do something else. That would be my, like, Tuesday afternoon to go and have treatment. But it meant... I didn't have to work because I was in the hospital. So you can't have your laptop or your phone. And then I would take a good podcast or audio book or get my favourite coffee after. Like all of these little bits that made it something that I used to dread to then something that actually was quite delightful in a weird way and like make friends with the people there. And I remember when I left, like <laughs> very weird, but we all like had a photo together and it was just like, they're so lovely. You'd walk in and they'd know, you know, know your name and yeah, it just became, it was having to like reframe it. And then even now when I go, it's the same where you know that, you know, you see the same faces and you know the same people. But I always try and think of it as like my way to reignite that wake up call a little bit. And it's typically not even what I'm doing while I'm there or the actual experience of getting my treatment, but it's more, I don't know, like walking into the hospital or seeing that there's people that are really ill and it might not hopefully be that that's there forever, but it's like, I'm still able to 
go and get that treatment and be receiving that treatment, even though it is something that's so rare. And so there's always the little more like fortunate bits in it and just really harnessing being there. And while it's going into me, I literally can't really do anything else to just try and think, right, what am I not pursuing? What am I not going after? And almost anchor back to that initial ignition moment really of, okay, what am I going to do so that I don't regret stuff? Going back to that in those following treatments, even though it's now three slash god I haven't even remembered like four years later what you said about you see other people when you're going for your treatment I sit in this in-between thing so I don't know if you'd relate to this of where I see people are really like able-bodied healthy people and I have moments of kind of like I don't know if jealousy is the right word but I look at them and I'm like oh you're so lucky and but then I go into the hospital and I see people who are way uh, more ill than I am and then I feel guilt and I feel like I should have gratitude and I don't know if you ever have any of those sort of feelings yeah definitely I think the one that came to mind when you described that is when I was first getting so when I shifted from San Francisco to back in the UK and there's only two hospitals one luckily being in London that are specialists for PNH and so when I would then start going up there it felt like I always remember that being the weirdest sense of imposter syndrome that I'd ever had because people you know you you go to check in or like you know say what you're there for so that you can see the specialist and whenever I'd say PNH because yeah people would always which is lovely make comments of like gosh you really can't you know you can't tell or you wouldn't know that you do this I think because of what I do as well like a big part of PNH is not having the energy and so to them whenever they ask me you know the questions of how you're doing their level of do you have the energy like mine I think I and we make jokes of it of the fact that they're expecting that I won't have the energy to do the talk that I did where we met, for example. And for me, it's more like, oh, yeah, but I could have like squeaked out an extra 30 minutes of doing this. Or like, I haven't been able to like go on a run this week. And it's little bits, which again, you then feel, am I asking for too much? Or is this actually okay? Because this is what I want to be doing. And I want to feel that if I want to go on a run, which let's be honest, is not going to be for that long, like on that day, that I can actually go and do it. And I just remember starting in the sort of process that I'm in now in London and in that hospital it was very much like I just yeah felt this weird sense of imposter syndrome and I just remember thinking this is kind of weird because like I typically feel imposter syndrome in the work setting but now I have this stuff but I feel like I don't have it as in I don't feel it impacts me day to day and I don't really think about it too much and if anything I've shifted it to this positive that it's quite a alien shift in the mind where a lot of the people that I might be speaking with are speaking to you as if it's a negative and obviously caring for you in that way and and yeah Mm. yeah I think I sort of sit in that in between a little bit as well and to pick up on what you said about like going for a run and things do you find that you have to I don't know what the symptoms are but do you struggle with your fatigue sometimes and you have to pick and choose so if you're kind of doing a talk then you're like I know that the next day I have to not have things on yeah absolutely and so really in like the two weeks leading up to my treatment I try as much as possible to take things easier and then the week before I basically although I said this to them the last time I was in I was like is it normal that I don't feel like exercising in the week before and they were like if anything exercise was help would help and I was like that's not what I want to hear I want to get away with like being <laughs> able it. to say I can't do it this week I'm just going to eat what I want and do what I want um but yeah I do I do kind of cater for it so if I have travel in that time like in that two-week period for example I'd take it a bit easier like for the rest of the time or you know factor in things that are more like one-on-one coaching so it's not necessarily speaking or doing 
sort of adapt and like do a bit of Tetris when it comes to knowing I've got treatment coming up. Can we talk about the transition of your diagnosis and why you've fallen into what you're doing now? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So I try and think where that begins. So I think, like we spoke about, I've always been sort of searching for that more meaningful, fulfilling path and then joining that with the more like entrepreneurial me. So when we spoke about the sort of sense of regret that I felt after my diagnosis, I think that regret was that I'd almost felt like I'd lost what, again, I would have called fearless Jess, you know, that 19-year-old Jess who started a business, who went on Dragon's Den, did all of these random things, which back then would have absolutely been to myself, sorry. <laughs> um, I was trying to think, what's another word for something myself? And then I thought, it's not coming to me, is there? You know, um, all basically doing all of the things that scared me, but doing them anyway... And I felt like I'd lost her because, as we said, that narrative of, like, what if I quit my job and never get another job again was just sort of running what I was doing. And all of the negative what-ifs were driving my choices, really. And so post-diagnosis and after getting through the initial fear, then the shock and working through it until sort of getting back to really what felt like quite a healthy equilibrium in terms of making choices from that place... That was probably a year later. And it was on the anniversary of my diagnosis, actually, that I thought, like, this is it. I'm going to hand in my notice. Again, I was back for a Christmas visit in the UK. So I went back to San Francisco in the January, handed my notice in after chickening out for a little bit in the February, and then left. And I had no idea what was next. Like, I purposefully quit without knowing or having any next plan because I wanted purposefully to create that space to let things bubble up I felt I hadn't really been listening to whether it's like that inner knowing or those inklings and the inkling at the time was telling me to quit and that there was something else but I didn't know what that something else was and then as you do I went on a yoga retreat um, <laughs> Classic. Which, and really I just switched off my phone for that whole time and I went over my birthday actually so it was quite like a reflective time the retreat I remember was called Yoga as a Vehicle for Change. So I thought, hey, up, like the kind of people that are going to go to this are going to be going through a change of some sort. And so rather than just going to get really good at yoga, which was not my intention, I'd never done yoga before, I thought I want to go and just have really good chats and good food, fingers crossed, and maybe do a bit of yoga, but like five minutes a day and spend the rest of the time exploring like internally really and and not having my phone to distract me not having work to distract me and it was actually on that retreat in those conversations that I started to see maybe I could coach people because there was two brilliant ladies who were actually one of them was a mum of the lady running the retreat or one of the ladies running the retreat and she said to me about coaching young people who are going through a diagnosis because I was obviously telling them about mine and, and what inspired me to quit my job and that sort of planted the seed of coaching and then thinking about how I could help people. And I remember it was sitting on this lovely beach and it was in the middle of nowhere. And I remember thinking, yeah, actually, maybe I could harness this wake-up call. And this sort of term, Unleash Extraordinary, had sort of been floating in my mind, which is now the workshops that I run. Because that, to me, captures what my diagnosis did for me, sort of really unleashed the true me and that sort of courage to go after stuff rather than the fear of not and so it was on that beach that I thought of this and then straight away 
up popped the, oh, God, but who am I to do that? Or, you know, what if I do it and nobody comes to the workshops or I can't help people or it just doesn't land? And then I thought, I literally have nothing else, so I'm going to test these narratives rather than listen to them. And I think if I'd still had my job, I would have heard them and retreated. I would have gone back to the job and just not listened to them. But because I literally had quit already, I could just think to myself, I literally have a blank canvas to do anything here. So why would I not grab those and think, well, let's give it a go anyway. And that's basically what I did. And then from there became this method that I harness, which again is called Unleash Your Extraordinary. It's all about these three steps, which really extracts the kind of core frameworks for building products to what we can harness for building ourselves and building the features of ourselves, if you will, whether that's you know, changing like our life like I wanted to or just being a better public speaker or being a leader, leading a team or starting a company. It's all sort of this core of if we have the vision, then we can unpack what might hold us back and then actually see them as things to be tested rather than to be believed. And so that then I started doing workshops in 2017 and it's just grown from there. So then that became one-on-ones and then started a podcast and then do talks and yeah many now hundreds of people have been through workshops and things however many years later might be sending you a message about that because i need a bit of help my own life um thank you for sharing that to me yeah of course i'm just going to ask my last question that i ask everyone and that is if you could bottle a feeling or an emotion and open it at any time what would it be good question so through speaking with you today i've changed it and actually I'm going to go for the regret, the fear of regret, because I feel like that's the polarising feeling that kicks me up the bum, basically, to do stuff, because the alternative of not trying is always way scarier to me than giving it a go and it not working immediately or at least being on the path towards achieving whatever it is that we're pursuing. So I think it would be the fear of regret. Nice. Yeah. And with you, what you had that moment, you're like, well, what, what have I got to lose? Exactly. Maybe well just try this thing. Yeah, so. and that feeling for me, the regret ignites that exactly. So it's almost like the starting domino that then just becomes, cool, well, let's go for it. Let's make it happen somehow or give it a go or iterate until we get there. So, yeah, fear of regret. I think before it was going to be like courage or it's going to be, you know, that sort of self-belief. Mm. But then I think, again, they're... they're phrases that we hear so much but it's like how do I actually get to that you know how do I believe in myself more and I think for me what it was anyway was that fear basically because fear is one of the strongest emotions right it will have us do anything almost or not do stuff like pursue what we actually want to pursue and so kind of harnessing that to spark the courage spark the self-belief and have you got anything coming up or where can we find you Probably the easiest thing is to say to find me on Instagram where I'm pretty active, which is at Jess Ratcliffe. And then everything like the podcast, video content that I do, etc., will be and any events that I'm speaking at will be all referenced and talked about on there. Thank you so much. And My thank pleasure. You for thank sharing you. Story. Thank you for joining The Wobbly Road. I'm your host and producer, Tatum Swithenbank. A huge thanks to my co-producer, Bridie Addison-Child. We are powered by Transmission Roundhouse, music by James Christie. Catch you next time.
Average weight loss 15.4 pounds in first two months. For guarantee, cancel within first 14 days. Discount with two months of auto delivery. Food charged and shipped every four weeks. Call or see website for details. Do you want to lose 18 pounds fast and improve your health? Now you can lose up to 18 pounds in your first two months with Nutrisystem. Get delicious breakfasts, lunches, dinners, even snacks and shakes delivered safely to your door. All delivered for free. It's easy to follow, and you'll see results in your first week. Just text BODY to 323232. You'll get your favorite foods made healthier and perfectly balanced to put your body in fat-burning mode. Text BODY to 3232. 232 right now and get 50% off a month of meals and shakes. That's right, 50% off a month of meals and 50% off a month of shakes with probiotics to help support your immune system. Just text BODY to 323232 right now. There's even a money-back guarantee. Millions of people have lost weight with Nutrisystem, and you can too. Lose up to 18 pounds in your first two months. Just text BODY to 323232. That's B-O-D-Y to 323232. Texting privacy policy and terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting enrolls for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop to opt out. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.